We are called to a time of fellowship this morning through the words of the psalmist, and the word is quoth. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purposes. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And there's this key word in this passage, the steadfast love. I think we have to remember that it's because of the Lord's covenant love for us as Christians that his word becomes more and more attuned to our lives as we flee from sin. So let the covenant love of the Lord minister to you today as Pastor Greg preaches his word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 7. And as well, use the insert, follow along as we study this text uh, together. Zechariah 7 through 8 is the text I'm preaching on today. I'm not going to read all of the chapter, both chapters, but I will read 7 through 8, 3. And, uh, and then we're just going to get really a taste of this section um, of this book. So Zechariah has three different sections, 1 through 6, the first six chapters, the last six chapters, and two in the middle. And uh, this morning we're looking at the two in the middle. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word, Zechariah 7 and, and uh, through 8, 3, all of it, obviously. And as out of reverence and respect for our God and the reading of his word, let me ask you to, to stand together with me. Hear now the word of our king. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true, uh, uh, true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother 
And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And it came about that just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with the storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolate behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the privilege you've given us this very moment to be here before you in this, your passage, to submit ourselves to this part, a portion of your word. And we pray, O Lord, to be, to be confronted and encouraged and built up, rebuked and, re, and refashioned to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this time towards that end, that Christ might be exalted, that you might be glorified, that we, your people, would respond, genuinely be responsive to your word this day. Bless me to preach your word with clarity. Bless us, your people, to understand it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the word religion has become a bad word in the, the church. I think more so just a couple decades ago than now, but still it's a bad word. When you think of religion, typically you think of the high church, high liturgy. You think of robes and incense and... and um, you know, um, stained glass windows and ceremonies when you think of religion. Um, I remember as a, a young man in Christ being told that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I believed that for many years. And yet, brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with the word religion. It's a good word. In fact, it's a word used positively in Scripture. Our... our uh, um, our qualm, when it comes to the word religion, is when that refers to um, outward acts of service with the goal of placating God. Um, brothers and sisters, the word religion, by definition, <coughs> refers to a relationship. Religion presupposes that God created us to have a relationship with God whereby we respond out of reverence and respect and love. That's religion. Now, when that religion revolves around our own activity of serving God, our outward acts of religious devotion, that's the reason why God loves us, then that word religion we got a qualm with. But when that word refers to the glorious grace and love of God because of his mercies in Christ, and we respond with religious acts, that's the glorious response described in Scripture with regards to religion. James 1 says, the pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. 
Accordingly, we ought not to have a problem with the word religion. Our qualm is, is when religion refers to outward, external acts as the reason God loves us. That's how Paul uses it. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 10 when he says, I bear his fellow countrymen witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. That's external religious activity. Seeking to establish their own by their religious activity. They rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul says that in the last days, God's people in essence would become very religious. The worldling would become very religious in a bad way. Going well beyond his time, Paul wrote, In the last days there will be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, external religious activity, but denying its power. So brothers and sisters, religion is a good word insofar as it describes how God made us. He made us have a relationship with God. And when that relationship is the basis upon when, for what we do, then religious activity is wonderful. But when we think religious activity is what gives us that relationship, it's bad. This morning we're looking at a passage, uh, Zechariah 7 through 8, which is central to this prophecy. I've titled this a crux interpretum. And if you know anything about that statement, a crux interpretum, the word crux means cross, a crux interpretum is a passage, a teaching, an idea, which if you miss, you will miss it all. Or if you, it's, it's a passage which, which is grueling. It causes us to, to um, have to um, change our course and go a complete different way. That's a crux interpretum. And that is exactly what Zechariah 7 through 8 is. The first six chapters revolve around eight visions which God gave to his people, incredible promises, incredible affirmations. Think back upon them. The last six chapters of Zechariah involve glorious um, prophecies about the, the purpose, the place, and the work of the Messiah and how that uh, a coming king and what he would do. And right in between them is seven and eight, which if you miss you will miss so many of the blessings that God has promised in 1 through through 6 and 9 through 14. But if you get, if you get 7 through 8, you will bask in light of the glorious promises and and assurances of the rest of this book. That's how important 7 through 8 is. I believe it's not only a crux interpretum when it comes to this book, I think it's a crux interpretum when it comes to your walk with God. Miss this message, and while you will be saved and you will be the object of God's love, you will not enjoy so many of the benefits and the blessings that come from salvation. This is a crux interpretum. Well, let's dive into this. What makes this so important is that God is, descri- is talking to his people about the place of religious activity in a Christian's life, in their life. Okay? And based upon that, how you answer that a question, what role does religious activity have in my life? That will be the difference between enjoying God's grace 
and being, and being um, blind to it. So let's dive in. It begins with a religious inquiry. Notice with me verse 1. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Okay, so we're two years later. This is the last time indicator in Zechariah. We're two years after the visions of 1 through 6. Specifically, December 7th, 518 B.C. So this is a good two years there, which means the temple is well underway. Remember that at this point in 520, they, they, they once again started back on the temple. Two years into it, the temple is looking pretty good. The form's taking shape. They're just two years short of it being finished, and people are getting excited. And at this point, we then we pick it up in verse 2. Now the town of Bethel had sent Shar Ezer and Regamelech and their men, a delegation from Bethel was sent to the, to the prophets and priests to ask a very specific question, to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who, were, who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying... Now, real quickly, this is um, um, uh, um, um, rare. Do you find um, people asking both prophet and priest for advice in the Old Testament? And the reason why is typically one of them, depending on the age, was the secret answer man. Here they're asking both. And the reason why is they're asking questions not about God's written word. They're asking more for wisdom. And because of that, they want wisdom from both the prophet and the priest. Regarding a very important question, notice what the question is. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Let me give you the background. When God's people went into exile in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed, which meant the worship of God was destroyed. And any ceremony, feast, or feast day that revolved around the temple would have also been ceased. So God's people went into exile with basically their religion gutted. And so they, in exile, created things that would help them in their walk with God. The first thing they created was the synagogue. And the synagogue basically um, was a gathering of ten men um, minimum where God's God's people would gather on the Sabbath and and they followed the exact liturgy of the temple. And in that liturgy, every time there was a sacrifice, they'd either put a prayer in or a scripture reading. And And it culminated in a sermon. Okay, so they created the synagogue during this time. They also created feasts. Think of Esther and the Feast of Purim. God's people created that, such that when you come to the New New Testament, God's people were still participating in the Feast of uh, Purim. And even today, Purim is one of the most celebrated feasts in Judaism. Obviously not as celebrated as Passover, but very popular. And then they also established four fasts okay four fasts you've got the chart in front of you the first fast occurred in the fourth month july which sought to remember the fall of the city walls the second fast august marked the destruction of the temple the third fast october remembered the murder commemorated the murder of the righteous jewish governor Gedaliah, and the fourth feast, or fast, I'm sorry, not a fast, a feast, but a fourth fast, January, 
marked the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. Now the question that is being asked is, this second man-made fast that God's people developed in exile to commemorate the destroyed temper, to remember it. And thus, it's a good question. The temple's two years into being uh, completed. It looks basically done. So the question is, they're asking for wisdom. Should we keep doing this fast? I mean, the temple's basically done. Do we keep it up? It's a legitimate uh, question. We, 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 we understand that. Yeah, uh, the, the, one of the reasons we're fasting, because the, the broken temple, destroyed temple, the temple's being remade. Should we keep on fasting? Now, you'd expect a yes or no, no answer from the prophet or priest, but that is not what God gives his people at this point. Instead, he rebukes them. Notice with me the revelation of God's reproof. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, he's, asking, he's talking about the different festivals that they also added, like uh, Purim. Do you not cut for yourselves? Uh, I'm sorry, do you not cut? Do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Do you see what the issue is here, brothers and sisters? The issue was not, should we keep on doing a fast that really has no relevance? Um, the issue is their understanding of the fast. They were fasting for themselves. They were not fasting as an act of devotion to the Lord. They were not fasting out of love for the Lord. They were fasting to try to manipulate the Lord, to try to placate the Lord, to try to get God to act because his people are so sad. That's why they were fasting. Don't miss that. This is huge. Okay, that's why they were fasting. Biblically speaking, there's only one commanded fast. But the Bible talks a lot about fasting because God's people fasted a lot. And in it, we learn that the purpose of fasting in the scripture was to, was to miss a meal or two or three meals. A big fast would be all day. And thereby see how, be, or to be reminded of your incredible bond to this fallen world. You miss a meal and you're hungry. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. You're used to a nice big breakfast and you feel that hunger pain. It reminds you, man, oh man, I am bound to this world. And then you go to lunch and you miss lunch. And now it's afternoon and you're hangry, right? Now your whole life is being impacted because you miss lunch. And, how, and so now you're way behind you in the background. In your conversations, there's this emptiness in your gut. And it's calling out, eat food. Cling to the things of this life. Dinner comes and you miss dinner. And now you're feeling faint. You're feeling weak. And now it's 7 o'clock at night, and you're like, man, I gotta wait. I can't wait till the sun sets. I gotta get some food. Brothers and sisters, you know what the fasting's about? Fasting is for you and I. Now, what was designed to do is you miss a meal, and instead of just missing a meal and working through dinner or lunch or breakfast, during that meal, you're praying. And you're being reminded of your, of your bond to this earth and how you wish, this is key, you wish that you were so depended upon God in that way. That if you missed reading God's word in the morning, there'd be this emptiness. 
because you didn't fellowship with God. And dinner time, I'm sorry, lunchtime comes. You haven't prayed all day, and, and now there's this, there's this, oh man, so now lunchtime comes, and you begin praying, God, would you please create in me a dependence and devotion upon you as intense as my dependence and devotion is upon food? That's the whole point. It's dedication. It's delight. It's communion. It's prayer. That's the point of fasting. God's people didn't do that. God's people participated in fasting for very clearly, based upon this text, one purpose, and that was to placate God, to somehow influence God by their long face and their sadness for 70 years so that God goes, man, you know, I sort of feel bad about my kids, about my children. I'm going to act, I'm going to give them what they want. Basically, fasting or these ceremonies, whether it's fasting or feasting, whatever they were doing, it was done in order so that God would be moved. It's the child manipulating mom and dad, acting so sad, hoping that mom and dad go, oh, you're so sad. You remember Red Rider BB gun, brothers and sisters? Right? I mean, we all, I don't know about you, I did as a kid. How many times as I sit there in my chair, having been disciplined, thinking about now I'm, I'll be crippled the rest of my life and my dad will come up and my mom and they'll be begging me for forgiveness and they'll be, you know, I'm just going to keep on having that long face and that sadness and, and maybe that'll move my mom and dad to say sorry for spanking me and sorry for making my life so miserable. That's what God's people were doing here. Think about that. And so God comes and he rebukes them. He comes and tells them Brothers and sisters, I can't give you a yes or no answer to that because your whole platform for why you're doing the religious acts of service is wrong. They failed to remember, brothers and sisters, that, is, that, that um, their righteousness was filthy rags, that there's nothing they could ever do to placate or satisfy God's just wrath towards them on account of their sin. Nothing. And that God's people endeavored to do that at this time was a moral travesty, brothers and sisters. So think of the glorious messages God gave his people in Zechariah 1 through 6. And the glorious messages he will give them. And all the glorious messages of grace and, and mercy. And you've heard it many times already. From the call to, to worship, Scott sharing that, brothers and sisters, confession of sin. You don't confess to get God to forgive you. You confess because he has. You don't confess to get God to love you. You confess because he has. We all say that. But practically speaking, do you live that way? Are you on a day-in and day-out basis seeking to placate God in the religious activity that you do? That's the issue here. That's the crux interpretum. Oh, yes, we believe in grace. We believe we're saved by grace. Praise God. We believe we're blessed because of God's grace and not us. But when the, but when the rubber meets the road, what in the base of your, of your being before God, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you reading the Bible? Why are you at church? Why do you pray? Are you doing these things ultimately so that God will like you more or bless you more or see how sorry you are and be moved? When you confess your sin, do you believe your tears somehow move God in his heart to forgive you more than if you didn't cry? That's the issue here. God's people for 70 years created, adopted this horrible pattern in their relationship. Their religious activity moved the heart of God. They believe that. So God comes in, he rebukes them.
Now, he didn't stop there. He gives them a case study. He gives them an example of something that they knew in their history. Notice with me verse 7. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? Now, he's going to give a quote of what the old prophets used to say. And the former prophets are not Elijah and Elisha. They're all the prophets before the exile. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Naaman. When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities rounded, and the Negev, the south of Jerusalem, and the foothills, the Shephelah, were um, inhabited. He starts in verse 7 talking about the prosperity of, of Jerusalem. Think about it. From 1010 down to 586 B.C., God blessed Jerusalem and the environs around it. Now, God's people during this time, you know the history, were pretty wicked people. They rebelled big time, but God still blessed them. Already, you're starting to see... Wow, so God's blessing was not based upon the righteousness of God's people. It was based upon God's, God's own good, good pleasure. And that brings us then to verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, this is what the word was in the Old Testament. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Now, Zechariah is not giving this message to the people of God. He is quoting the message that God gave to the people of God in the Old Testament. That's what verse 7 or 8 through uh, 10 is. God had repeated this so many times, Isaiah 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Come or cease uh, to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead of uh, the widow. God's, God told his people this in the Old Testament before the fall of, uh, of Babylon. Or of, uh, Jerusalem many, many times, over and over. Jeremiah 22, he pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well, is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, knowing me is caring for the poor. If you don't care for, for the poor, you're turning your back upon my word. Ezekiel 22, they have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. So this was a swell-established exhortation God gave his people throughout the kingdom years, throughout the theocracy. Verse 11, notice the people's response, though. But they refused to pay attention. In other words, they did not submit. That's the idea. And turned a stubborn shoulder, speaks of an ox that fights against a yoke. I don't want that passage. They stopped their ears from hearing. They literally covered their, their ears, and they made their, their, their hearts like diamond which is the hardest naturally occurring mineral on the earth, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. <clears throat> this is incredible. The religion of God's people during the kingdom years was incredibly superficial. It was all about them. They believed. You think, why wouldn't they submit to God's word? Because they believed that God was a Santa Claus God. And he existed for their benefit. The fact that they were a nation proved to the world that they were something hot, something incredible. God was blessed to have them as his people. Now, God told them what to do. Yeah, 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 whatever. The reality is, we're going to do what we want to do because we're such great people. And God may have these demands, so we don't do them. It's not, it's not a big deal because God exists for us. God, God loves us. We are the big uh, uh, cat's meow when it comes to the kingdom of God. God is not as important as, as us. If they'd only remembered their beginning, if only. Deuteronomy 9, 6. 
when God established them into a nation, he said these words. You um, know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for your stubborn people. They forgot that. They thought, in fact, if you were to look at what they're living, we could, we, could, we could change that verse to being this. Know then it's because you're a righteous people that the Lord God is giving you this good land to uh, possess because you are an amazing people. That was how they lived. And because that's how they lived, they completely ignored God and his grace and his mercy. They thought God owed it to them. They didn't realize that they indeed were beggars or ought to be as beggars. And so their heart was far from God. Jesus Christ describes that, that era in Matthew when he says this, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is as far away uh, from me. Isn't that amazing? You know what characterized God's people for 500 years? Their hearts being far from God. So God comes and he says, I'm going to give you an Old Testament example. You all know it. I gave my word to the people. And the people at this point understood very full well in the exile, the reason they went into exile is because they did not submit to God's word as a theocracy, as a corporate, uh, uh, a political group. They rejected God's word. God says, you're just like that now. You're still rejecting my word. How are we rejecting your word? Because you're not fasting out of love for me. Your walk, your relationship is not a response to the love of God. Your relationship is given so that God will love you. Your religion is so that God will be placated. Just like the Old Testament people of God who went into exile in the very... I'm in the first place. Notice with me verse 12b then. Therefore, because they completely ignored grace, completely ignored my word, therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. That wrath culminated in four exiles, 722, 605, 597, and the big one on 586. And it came about that just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with the storm wind among all the... the, all of other nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth for they made the pleasant land desolate. Such a sad state for the people of God. As a nation, they rebelled against the Lord. And so as a nation, God sent them into Babylon. Now, did, that, did God send them into Babylon because he hated them? Because he didn't care for them, exact opposite. The reason God's people went into exile, why? Was because he loved them. Right? Hebrews 12, 11. It's for discipline. We endure. If you're not with discipline, you're not loved. God disciplined his people. That's why they went into exile. Let me review real quickly for you. When God, when man fell, God gave the, the gospel, right? Genesis 3, 15. But he didn't organize God's people into a religious nation, a clan, until Abraham. And when he did this, hear these words. Romans 4, 10. Did God organize Abraham into a holy nation, his people, into a holy clan because of their religious activity? Paul says, absolutely not. How then was it reckoned, his righteousness? While he was circumcised because of his religious activity? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So God came to Abraham, organized him into a religious nation because of pure grace, that he had done nothing to deserve it. He was an idolater in Babylon. 
Yet God organized him, claimed him, set his love upon him, and, and, and brought him into his family, made him part of his family. Okay? It wasn't because of his religious activity. Now, 400 years later, roughly, God then also organized his people into a political nation. We call it theocracy. Unlike the religious nation, which was based upon 100% God's pure grace, the theocracy was based upon the activity, the faithfulness of the nation. You know this. I've quoted this verse so many times during 28. It shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe all that he commands and his statutes with which I charge you that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So brothers and sisters, for this era, roughly a thousand years, God's people were, had a double relationship with God. They had a relationship predicated upon God's unconditional grace, based upon God's grace and grace alone. Individually, they stood before God, say, because of the coming work of the Messiah, not because of their religious activity. But as a nation, they stood before God as a nation, not as individuals, based upon their faithfulness. So what did God do? When they were unfaithful as a nation, they went into exile. That's what happened in 586. God was punishing the people of God as a nation. But throughout all this time, God's love, his grace, and his care for his people did not change. Listen to Leviticus 26, where God tells, through Moses, prophesies that when, God's, when this nation falls, this is what's going to happen. I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. When they are in the land of their, of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them so as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Do you understand what he says in, in Leviticus? They're going to go into exile, but I am not going to forget my relationship that I have with them, which was based upon God's love. That's it. Which means this. Seventy years later, when God's people came back to, to Palestine and rebuilt the, a temple, why did God let them come back? Answer that in your mind. Because of what? Because of their fastings? Because of their feasts? Because of their devotion in Babylon? Absolutely not. God brought them back purely because he loved them. Theocracy's gone. He's blessing them because he loves them. That's it. That's why he brought them back. But you know what God's people did during that time? They developed a system where they believed they were placating God. That their Bible study, their readings, their prayer, their sacrifice, their religious activity somehow earned them merit before God, moved the heart of God, so that when they came back to the promised land, they could say definitively, God is now blessing us for our righteousness. So now they come as people who have placated God successfully. How do you know that? The temple's being rebuilt. And what's the question? Do we need to continue placating God? Do we need to? I mean, we've proven that we're righteous. We've proven to the world, to God, that we're worthy by virtue of the fact that the temple is being rebuilt. Do we need to continue the placation in this way? Brothers and sisters, that is every one of us. When we say things are going well, do I really need to be in the Word today? Things are going well, do I really need to go to church? 
family of God, get struck with cancer. See what happens to your walk. Most Christians who I have ever met who have had cancer or difficulties in their life, they say, man, I'll tell you what, it made my walk with God so close. Why? Because you're hurting and you're clinging to to God. What happens when things aren't hard and things are easy? You begin looking at religious activity as optional. Do I really need to read the word of God today? Brothers and sisters, you see, this is a crux interpretum. It raises the question, why are you doing religious activity? Why are you reading? Why are you praying? Why do you go to church? Why do you confess your sin? Why do you have family devotions? Are you doing it out of a love, a desire to be close to God? I love you, Lord. I want to be with you today. And when I don't read your word, I miss fellowshipping with you. Is that why? Or Or are you reading because that's what Christians do? That's how I walk out. That's how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why do I do it? I do it because that's what good Christians do. Brothers and sisters, if that is why you're doing what you're doing, this, these two chapters are a, a sober call for you and I to evaluate. Yes, we say with our lips we're saved by grace, but how are you living? Why is it when things are rough, you cling to the reading of God's word? Why? Why is it when you struggle so much that, that it draws you to, uh, to God? You go, Greg, it should, because he's my Savior and Lord. Agreed. Amen. I'm not criticizing it. But I'm simply using a, di- a uh, what would you call it, a diagnostic question for my own soul. Why is it when things are rough, I cling to God, and when things are going smooth and easy, I can flippantly say, oh, I don't need to read the Word of God today. I'm not going to pray today. I don't need to pray. I don't need. I don't need. Why do you think you need to read the Word of God, Christian? Better yet, soul, why do you think you need to read the Word of God? Is it because you think by doing so it somehow makes you a better Christian? Brothers and sisters, if that is your answer, receive the rebuke of the Lord. Notice, brothers and sisters, when religious activity is done in response to God's grace, it's encouraged in Scripture. Notice with me chapter 8, verse 1. So the first sermon, there's two sermons here. The first sermon that Zechariah preached is Zechariah 7, and it really is a rebuke. You all are not standing before God on the basis of Christ. You're standing before God on the basis of your religious activity. Now that I've shown you that, what should be the basis upon which you stand before God? Second sermon, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for, my, for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I'm jealous for her. That's why he's rebuilding the temple. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Brothers and sisters, do you understand why the temple, what God is telling us? This is why I'm rebuilding the temple. This is why I bless you. It's because I love you. That's it. Has nothing to do with your performance. Nothing has nothing to do with how much you sin or don't sin. Brothers and sisters, for 70 years, God's people left from being a people who had completely ignored God's word, that's the example he gave, to a people clinging to the synagogue, not missing it, doing four now, I'm extra fast, adding feast days, all to somehow show the Lord how worthy they are of his love. They're just as wrong. 
just as wrong as the Old Testament people of God. But there's a difference. The Old Testament people of God from, from David on down to the end were theocracy, where their, where, where their obedience as a nation would either curse them or bless them. That is gone. That whole mentality should be wiped off the slate. That mentality is gone now. All that remains is your walk with God via the Abrahamic covenant, whereby you and I have become a religious nation, not because of circumcision or any religious external activity, but because it pleased the Lord to redeem us. He said his love on you before. Incredible. And that's the point of 1 through 3. Joyce Ball, actually, notice the phrase in verse 2. With great wrath, I'm jealous for her. I don't know if I'm sure what the ESV says. Look at that phrase. With great wrath, I'm zealous for my people. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that the intensity of wrath that impelled me to act against the theocracy is now equal with the intensity of my love for my people. In fact, both went on at the same time. The intensity of God's wrath that wiped the nation off the face of the earth, that completely destroyed it, Go back to that time in your mind or in Scripture and think how brutal and awesome and horrible it would have been all because God's people were suffering because of their rebellion as a theocracy, a nation, not individuals, a nation. And understand that is the intensity of God's love for you right now. Even when you sin, even when you failed, that is God's love for you. That's what he's saying here. And then the rest of this chapter, well, let me get you, Joyce Baldwin. Whereas the divine jealousy and wrath elsewhere oppose Israel and Zechariah, they work on her behalf. The zeal with which God had carried through his chastisement of Israel and then of of the nations was now burning to restore the covenant bond. Incredible pun, okay? The intensity of God's wrath is the intensity of his love for you right now. Now, the rest of the chapter, the rest of the sermon of Zechariah 8, the second sermon of Zechariah, is an is a expose of God's love. And I'm not going to go through it in detail. I'm going to let you study on your own if you so desire. But let me get the high points. One, notice the blessing of God's grace. It would result in blessing upon Jerusalem. Verse 4 through through 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men, old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. Security. God, be, we're, we're done with the theocracy. Never again are you, is your relationship with God going to be like it was under the theocracy. Now, God's love is so great that he's going to establish a, a city of which you'll be a member where you will be full, fully secure. The idea of verse four, 4 and 5 is total security. Verse 6 through 8. It will result in blessing upon the people. And I will bring, verse 8, I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Those are the words God said on our wedding night in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He's repeating them here. In essence, he's saying, Christian, you will always and ever be the apple of my eye. Before the world began, I set my love upon you. That will never change. So the idea of merit-based religion, placation, it's off the table. 
All you've got now is a God who first acted, and his first act is love. He's loved you. Notice now, because of that, it would result in a modification of God's discipline when it comes to the redeemed. Notice 10 through 11. For before those days, during the theocracy, there was no wage for men or any wage for animal. And for him who, who went out or came in, there was no peace because of, of his enemies. Um, and I said, all men, one another, um, one, I'm sorry, against one another. But now, so in the, during the theocracy, brothers and sisters, when God's people blew it, they didn't have peace. There was struggle. There was, there was conflict. They would, get, they would get tangible consequence for their sin. Bad boy, spank, spank, spank. It was horrible. As if God didn't care about them. But now, now that the theocracy is gone and all they now are is a religious nation, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, does he still discipline us because he loves us? Of course he does. But it will not be tit for tat. It will not be, oh, you didn't read the word of God. I'm going to dis- You're going to get spanked uh, for that. That's why we, the constant theme for 20 years here has been, brothers and sisters, when bad things happen, don't think God is Zeus. And act as if, oh, you did something wrong. You've offended the divine. Oh, holy divine, please. What must I do to placate your divine wrath? That's completely gone. That's now Zeus. That's how God's people respond to all the false gods that they've made up, but not the, tr- the real God the only God. And then notice with me 14 through 17, it would result in a modification of God's purpose for the redeemed. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. During the theocracy, there was a lot to fear. We've got a wicked king. God is going to strike us with lightning. And you could say that as the theocracy. Am I making myself clear, guys? Not individually, but because of the theocracy. That's gone now. The theocracy is gone. We're we're done with that kind of living. Now the only thing God will do for you is blessing. And that's why we read in Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. New Testament equivalent in Jeremiah 29, 11, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That's the new, never again, never again in your life can you say, this is happening in my life because I didn't read the word of God. This is happening in my life because I didn't go to church. This is happening in my life because I've been sinning really bad. So God's now getting equal. I'm sorry. God's getting even with me because of my sin. That is placation, brothers and sisters. That is moralism. That is wrong. Never again will that happen. Now, does God discipline you at all times? Yes. Will he always discipline you in and through all things? Yes, because he loves you. And if you're under church discipline, are you being disciplined for sins done? Yes. But, that, but none of us here are under church discipline. So we must understand that from this point onwards, we are under incredible purpose of God, and that purpose is our complete and total blessing, completely detached from religious activity. And that then leads to the teaching of grace. What do you do? If that's true, what do you and I do? Notice with me, one, be holy in relationships with each other, 16 through 17. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury for all those, uh, for all, the, these are the things which I hate, declares uh, the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is law. 16 through 17 is law. Not going to mitigate it, not going to whitewash it or or whatever, dilute it. It's pure law. But I hope you understand by now 
that, that law is a glorious thing if it is done in response to God's love. If I'm doing this law, 16 and 17, to, for God to love me and, and, and to placate God, that's whole, chapter 7, that whole sermon, that we're not doing that anymore. That's off the table, says God in chapter 7. Now, why do you do what you do? Because you love the Lord and you want to serve him. Anyone here love God? Yes. What do you want to do? I want to serve God. How? How do you serve him? I don't know. Law. But it's not a law to get God to love you. It's a law to give you the, the, the answer, the desire of your heart. And then it culminates, notice with me, 18 through 19. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months will become joy, glass, and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Do you understand what he's saying here now? Religious, outward religious activity finds their place in the context of grace. Why do you read the word of God? Because he loves me. I want to know him. Why are you at church? Because he loves me. I want to worship him. Why are you praying? Because I love him. I want to draw near to him. I just want to, I want to be like John and sit upon his breast and look upon his eyes via his word and fellowship with God. All of that is religious activity. And all of it's fantastic. Do it, says God. Don't stop those fasts. Brothers and sisters, because of grace, fast becomes feasts. Duty becomes delight. But outside of God's grace, fast becomes mourning, becomes difficult, becomes, becomes, oh, does God love me? He loves me, he loves me not. I don't know. What am I going to do? Does God, have I placated God enough? God says, you're done with that, my walk with you. From this point onwards, through Christ, the end of the age, into the new heavens and the new earth, this is the definitive moment in your time, in your life. You're done with religious placation. You're done with moralism. You're done with relating to God on the basis of your conduct. God says, wipe it off your list, off your mind. Do the things you do out of love for me. The result, 23, the Gentile mission, you can read it, and we are the answer to this. God set a course that would culminate in the Gentiles clinging, coming in in droves to the people of God to become saved, and that is you and me right now. Incredible. Because of this message being proclaimed, understood, it brings the nations to, to, to God's people to say, let me be a part of that. I want to be a part of a relationship with God, not based upon what I do, but based upon his love for me. I want to be a part of that. So how do you respond? We're out of, out of time, clearly. How do you respond? Two answers. One, brothers and sisters, I exhort you this day, this week, this month, go on a spiritual death march to placation. Take up your cross. Follow me. Take up your... You know what that means? That means you're done placating. You're dying to self. You're dying to any idea that what you do can somehow make God love you more. So brothers and sisters, the first one is... Uh, search your heart. Psalm 139, uh, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. See where I am placating. I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, that, uh, that um, kernel, that uh, a seed is in your soul. And if you and I are not careful, it will take over. 
So examine yourself. See where you are relating to God on the basis of your religious activity. It won't be overt. It won't be obvious. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's there. And I know it's there every time. You, you know it's there every time you get angry at God and feel he has gypped you. If you feel God's gypped you, that tells me you've been living by application. Period. Secondly, stop defining yourself by your sin. Stop it. Stop defining yourself by the mud puddle you just climbed out of. Ian DeGuid, since the fathers did not take to heart the words of the earlier prophets and live like covenant keepers, they reaped the whirlwind. But his argument in chapter 7 is preliminary, setting up the point he is making in chapter 8. God's covenant faithfulness is determinative, determinative for the future, not the unfaithfulness of his people. What you do does not define you. God's grace is what defines you, Christian. Stop defining yourself by your failure. Define yourself by God's love for you. That's the point of these two sermons. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to fellowship around this truth, to encourage each other as the day draws near, and to daily, God, open my eyes Search me, O God. Try me. Know me that I would not relate to you on the basis of my performance. But may my life and heart and, and my entire world revolve around the cross of Christ, the grace of Christ, your love f- for me. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this incredible message, which to ignore is to not stop us from being loved by you, not to stop us to, from receiving the blessings that we saw in the seven visions in this text, the eight visions. But Lord, it's to miss living in light of the blessing of it. It's to be a people with all the resources in the world, but acting like we're, we're beggars. It's to be children of grace, but to act like we're children of law. It's to be a people who have a loving God who set his love upon them before the world began, but to live as if you were Zeus. Lord, we know we won't, it won't cost us our salvation. We know it will not cost us eternity. But boy, what it will cost us by virtue of peace and joy and love and working out our salvation with reverence and joy. God, I pray that you would grant us the grace to hear this message, to respond, and therefore, Lord, to be a people who would celebrate, rejoice, and exalt your grace, that we would be characterized by the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, and that we would go from from peak to peak, the peak being grace, living, loving, in light of the glory of Mount Jerusalem. 